Our scripture reading this morning is from John 20, 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. Put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen? (sighs) Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so from this passage, the little phrase, Doubting Thomas, has stuck. But in all fairness, there are many different kinds of doubt, different things that can cause doubt. Quite a number of years ago, I was pastor of a church in Vancouver, and we had quite a lot of college and careers age young people in the church. One was a young woman called Peggy. Peggy was one of these ebullient, tangential, creative thinkers. Mercifully, she wasn't studying engineering. Uh, She loved Jesus, and she was very effervescent in her faith. And um, if you stuck her at one end of the room and 90 or 100 others at the other end of the room, about half the energy in the room was at her end. She was one of those. And she came to me one day, and she said... um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a guy on the University of British Columbia campus who wants to take me out so that I can talk to him about Jesus. I said, uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to do anything surreptitious. I, I'm, I'm not going to fall for him. I mean, I, 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 I'm a Christian. I, I, I'd like to talk to him about, about Jesus. I said, uh-huh. But she kept nagging and nagging. And finally I said, fine, go out with him. Talk to him about Jesus and then bring him to see me. So she did. I was still single in those days. So late on a Saturday night, I was in my study. 10.30 at night, duck, duck, duck. In bounced Peggy. Behind her was Fred. And she said, Pastor Don, this is Fred. He wants to meet you. I could see right away that wasn't true. But nevertheless, we went out to one of the all-night restaurants not too far away, and he clearly didn't have a clue about anything Christian or biblical. He never held a Bible in his hand. He he didn't know anything at all about anything religious. And and he was skeptical about everything, was essentially a philosophical materialist. He believed in, in, in matter and space and time and energy plus nothing minus nothing. And uh, I tried to get him to relax. We talked till about 1.30 in the morning and asked a few questions. That's, that's as far as it went. 
Next Saturday night, they've been out to see a movie. 10.30 at night, tuck, 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 off we go to the restaurant again. This time he had a list of questions. We talked till 1.30 or 2 in the morning. I went through all the questions and suggested things that he should read. Next Saturday night, tuck, 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 off to the restaurant. He had read everything I had given him to read and had another list of questions. We talked through to 1.30 or 2 in the morning, and then off he went again. That went on for 13 weeks. Now, what this was doing to my sermon Sunday morning, I have no idea. (laughs) But he was in personality, just the opposite of Peggy. He was as straight and linear and logical and doer as she was effervescent and tangential and creative and so on. So at the end of 13 weeks, he said, all right, I'll become a Christian. Of the various people I've had the privilege of leading to the Lord over the years, it's the only one who's coming exactly that fashion. It, 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 what, what was his problem? It, it, his, his problem and his initial skepticism was just sheer ignorance. The way you meet that kind of doubt is with information. But sometimes doubt is caused by other things. I've, I've had men come to me at the age of 47 or 50 who have been reared in a Christian home, married a young Christian woman, reared their own children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, been faithful at church for many, many years. But somehow they've begun to drift and to cool off. And instead of being faithful in prayer meetings or anything of that sort, they show up on Sunday if they have time. They're busy climbing up the slippery slope of middle and upper middle management and so on. But but there's no love for Christ anymore. And eventually one of them comes to me and says something like, um, you know, I just don't believe all this stuff anymore. I, 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 I doubt just about everything. Do you know what I say? With whom are you sleeping? When did you stop praying? When was the last time you read your Bible? Over whom are you nurturing bitterness? When was the last time you shared your faith with anybody? You see, this person has not slunk into doubt because of a major crisis in their thinking. They haven't slunk into it because somebody's raised a really, really difficult philosophical system. They've got there by 10,000 individual decisions, all of them bad. But sometimes people end up in systemic doubt because they have adopted a philosophical system. A philosophical system that is profoundly anti-Christian. Here, for example, is Aldous Huxley in his book Ends and Means. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. The supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was an admirably simple method of confronting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. And for a while, that's what he espoused until he went on to other things. 
I have found similar comments, for example, in the writings of um, Michel Foucault, one of the fathers of postmodernism. Here there is a philosophical system that has been adopted self-consciously in order to rebel against any of the claims of Christ. Sometimes doubt is the product of burning the candle at both ends. When you become tired enough, you become skeptical, cynical, and finally doubting. I'm a pretty boring, flat sort of personality. People sometimes rise high and fall low. I don't experience their joys. I don't experience their sorrows. I'm basically dull. (laughs) But on the other hand, if I push hard enough, then I can get crabby. If I push hard enough, you know, and I'm running short of sleep, then my wife and my children face it. And if you push hard enough, then you can become so cynical that your cynicism actually runs toward doubt. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the entire universe is go to bed and get some sleep. Not pray all night. There's a place for that. There's a place for that. But sometimes the most important thing you can do is to sleep. Listen, some people need six hours sleep a night. Some people need eight hours sleep a night, whatever. But if you're the kind of person that needs eight hours sleep a night in order to be pleasant, then you owe it to Almighty God, not to mention all of your fellow Christians, not to mention the lost world, to get those eight hours every night. Unless there are overwhelming reasons, you don't have the right to go through life cynical, snarky, and rude. If your problem is not getting enough sleep, get the sleep, do you see? And so I could go on with a lot of other kinds of Um, causes for doubt. Sometimes people come from abusive backgrounds or uh, other things. Sometimes long-standing physical suffering can induce a kind of doubt. My only reason for going over some of these things is because all of them, with variations, are found in Scripture itself. Because there are many different kinds of causes to doubt, so there are different solutions The the, the person, for example, who is really, really ignorant needs information, not sleep. The person who is uh, sleeping around and uh, that's falling back on on their faith, uh, they need to repent. It's not so much they need more information. They need to repent. They, They know the information and so on and so on and so on. So the question immediately arises then, what kind of doubt are we dealing with in the case of Thomas? Because this passage does not answer every question about doubt. It answers certain kinds of doubt very well. But to understand this passage aright and to apply it aright to our lives, we must not expect it to answer every kind of doubt. What kind of doubt is being addressed here? How does it speak to us today? Well, let me remind you of the context. Jesus has been crucified. Quite frankly, his disciples had not expected this to happen. They sank into a despairing, somewhat fearful gloom, hiding in the upper room, wondering if they could be arrested next. The fact that they really didn't expect Jesus to rise again is revealed in the fact that when they're in the upper room, they're not saying, yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday. They're not expecting him to rise again. And then the first reports trickle in. A woman, then the women, the race of Peter and John to the tomb. That's reported in the first part of chapter 20. 
empty tomb. Mary in the garden seeing Jesus, thinking first of all it was the gardener. The two on the Emmaus road, reported in Luke. And, and then eventually Jesus meeting with 12, the 12, but really only 10 were there. One had committed suicide and Thomas wasn't there. And, and then he meets with um, seven in a, a lakeside scene, ultimately with 500. Many different appearances over weeks and weeks of time. But on that first Resurrection Sunday in the evening when Jesus met with the ten in a closed room, a locked room, where he suddenly materialized, he suddenly appeared. He'd never done that before. He suddenly appeared and they had seen him. Thomas was missing. And so we pick up the account. What we find, first of all, is the cry of a disappointed skeptic. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What kind of doubt is that? It's a resolution to doubt. I will not believe. But what is causing it? You see, this is not the doubt of a philosophical naturalist. That is someone who just thinks that all that exists is matter and energy and so on. He was a first century Jew, a devout first century Jew. He believed what we call the Old Testament. He had been a disciple of Jesus. He believes in the God of the Bible. Nor is it the, the, the doubt caused by someone who's sleeping around or someone who's simply exhausted. What kind of doubt is this? This is the doubt of someone who has been deeply, deeply disappointed religiously. And he doesn't want to get snookered by believing something that isn't quite true. He really had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And that Messiah had been killed. And you can almost hear the gears going around in his head. So now there are people saying, my own friends, my own fellow disciples saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Well, have they talked themselves into it, some sort of mass hallucination? Can I really believe that? So what he demands, what he demands is the strongest sort of evidence that there is continuity between the body that went into the tomb and the body that came out. He doesn't even want to be snookered by an identical twin that suddenly pops up very, very happily. No, he wants to make sure that there is continuity between the body that went in with its particular wounds and the body that came out, ostensibly. Now, in the first century, when you were crucified, you were either tied or nailed in your hands, wrists, and in your feet, ankles. Those were the wounds that were habitual. But the wound in Jesus' side was rare. You could hang on a cross for days, dying from crucifixion. But if they wanted you to die a little more quickly, perhaps because a holy day was coming, which was the case in this instance, what the soldiers would do is come along and smash your shin bones. 
And then you couldn't push with your legs anymore to open up your chest cavity so you could breathe and you'd suffocate in a few minutes. But when they got to Jesus, he had already been so badly battered that he died a little more quickly than some do. They found him already dead, so they never broke his bones in fulfillment, in fact, of an Old Testament prophecy. But one of the soldiers instead took the small javelin that these soldiers often had and shoved it up under Jesus' ribcage, pierced the pericardium, outflowed blood and water. So Jesus had a peculiar wound. This was not the normal wound of someone who had been crucified. We know of only one other from ancient history. There may have been others, but we know of only one. It was peculiar. And now what Thomas wants is evidence, the evidence of the wounds, that there is continuity between the body that went into the tomb and the body that ostensibly came out. Unless I see those marks, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is the agonizing cry of a skeptic. And in one sense, you know, it's commendable in one sense. Oh, he was too skeptical by half. But at least he was not going to be gullible. There are some Christians who believe every cock and bull story that comes along, so long as it's dressed up in Jesus' words. And they believe ridiculous things that have no real connection with the gospel or the word of God. They just believe silly things. They're gullible. Thomas was not going to find himself amongst their company. He wanted concrete evidence to believe that Jesus actually had risen. Here's the agonizing cry of a skeptic. Then in the second part of the narrative, now not the cry of a disappointed skeptic, but the adoration of an astonished skeptic. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, peace be with you was probably, in Hebrew, shalom, or modern Arabic, salam. And it can be a greeting, just like, hello. But in fact, what the word means is peace, and not just sort of psychological peace, but often it's used to refer to peace with God, well-being with God. And that Jesus should say this when he first greets the disciples on the first week and then say it again shows that it's, it's meant to be a pregnant expression. Now that I have died and risen from the dead, peace with God, well-beingness with God be with you. He uses the same expression again. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting. And believe. So already Jesus is reflecting supernatural knowledge of Thomas's doubt. He knows what Thomas said, and he addresses Thomas precisely on the demand that Thomas makes and says, See, I will meet these demands. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Now, we need to think very carefully about that confession. I'm sure that here in Indianapolis, there are some friendly neighbors who are Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm sure many of us have had them at our homes. 
knocking on our doors and trying to convince us of the truth of their own religious tradition. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is truly God. They have resurrected an ancient heresy from the 4th century called Arianism. They believe that he was a god, a junior god, a lesser god in some sense, but not truly to be worshipped as true god. So what do they do with a passage like this? Where Thomas actually says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Well, they actually offer two explanations in their books. I won't mention the second one. There's not time. I'll mention only one. One of the explanations I have found in their books says that what Thomas says really, in effect, was, my Lord, my God. (laughs) Which means that Thomas's response, his visceral response to the resurrection was blasphemy. Worse yet, Jesus goes on to commend Thomas for it in the next verse. (laughs) Now, every culture has its vulgarisms and its profanities and its blasphemies. Every culture does. But it's almost unthinkable that a first century devout Jew with Jesus for some period of time could actually take God's name in vain like that. It's just about unthinkable. Moreover, it doesn't explain the little word and. For even if you could imagine that somehow, by some horrible lapse, Thomas actually said, my Lord, my God. How do you turn that into my Lord and my God? It's the and that shows it can't possibly be a kind of expletive. But even if we accept what the text is right on the surface of the page... This is adoration, my Lord and my God. It still is strange. Because on first reading of it, the question becomes, why does Thomas confess so much? When he sees Jesus' body and is invited to put his hand into his side, wasn't, why doesn't he simply say, you are alive? Or, oops, was I wrong? Or, You're back from the grave. Fantastic. Or something. Why does he go so far as to say, my Lord and my God? It seems at first reading as if this confession is too strong. Why does he say so much? Well, you begin to answer the question for yourself when you read the book of John carefully and try to put yourself in John's place. He's had an entire week now since the rest of the apostles had first seen Jesus and had told him about it. He's had a week to think about it. You can imagine what's going on in his head. They're all so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. I just can't believe it. But suppose it's true. No, 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 no. It can't, it can't, it can't be true. I've, I've got to see the marks for myself. But suppose it's true. No, 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 no. It, 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 but suppose it's true. Well, Jesus did say some strange things, you know. I mean... It's only a few nights ago, on the night that he was crucified, the night that he was betrayed, that he said, Have I been with you such a long time, Philip, and yet have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's in John 14. It's in this book. And I'm sure at the time, the apostles didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. They didn't have any sort of well-developed doctrine of the Trinity yet. 
They were probably muttering under their breath, deep, deep, without really being able to put it together just yet. And if he had gone back in his memory a little further, a few more months, then he might remember that according to the end of John chapter 8, Jesus on one occasion said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham had been dead for about 2,000 years. Even if Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I was, it would have been pretty significant. It would have indicated pre-existence. That is, before his existence as the baby whom we know as Jesus, he would have had to exist before Abraham 2,000 years earlier. Pre-existence. If Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I was. But what he says is, before Abraham was, I am. And I am is the very name that God takes on his own lips in a passage like Isaiah 43.10, which itself is grounded on, on God's self-disclosure in his name all the way back to the book of Exodus. I'm sure on that occasion, too, the disciples were wondering just exactly what Jesus was saying. But now, forced to think it through again, these various ways in which Jesus has, 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 has acclaimed deity for himself, And then he might remember all the way back to John 5 where Jesus is teaching people and he says that the Father's determination is that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. But if you're going to honor someone as you honor God, the only conceivable justification for it is that he be God's equivalent or one with God himself or truly God because otherwise you're doing what the entire Bible forbids confusing creator and created God and those whom God has made and who answer to him so you can imagine how this is churning through his mind during the week and then in addition to these sorts of things that are found in John's gospel they're part of the narrative that John tells then he would have also remembered other events in Jesus' life that are not reported in John's gospel, but that are reported in one or the other of the canonical gospels. Let me mention just one more. You'll recall the account of the paralyzed man who was brought by four of his friends to Jesus. It's found in Mark's gospel. Jesus is preaching in a house. The house is packed. Those days, they didn't put in lots of chairs. They just put in lots of bodies. The house is packed solid. Jesus is preaching to them. And up come these four gentlemen with a fifth one who's paralyzed whom they're carrying, maybe on a, a small mat, a small cot or the like. And they, they, they try to make their way into the house. We, we, we want to see Jesus. We want to be healed. And the crowd hushes them down. Wait your turn. Wait your, the master's speaking. Don't be so rude. Just just wait. Just wait. Well, they they don't want to wait. So what they do is they go up the outside stairs to the flat roof. Many, many houses in those days without air conditioning had flat roofs. People would go up and take the air in the evening um, because, of course, there was no air conditioning and down below it was pretty hot. So they had these outside stairs and and so they go to the, the flat roof and they listen carefully for where Jesus' voice is coming and when they find where he is, then they start taking off the the, 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 the slats. They start taking off the the, the, the roof shingles. And pretty soon they have a nice little hole. And you can imagine down below Jesus is sort of interrupted a wee bit looking up. And then they lower this chap down onto the crowd with ropes dropping the cot. If the 
crowd won't make way out of compassion. They'll make way because a bed is coming down on their heads. And eventually then this chap is in front of Jesus and Jesus says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the theologians in the crowd say, this man is talking blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's important to understand that they did have a point. Suppose, God forbid, suppose, on your way home today from church, you get brutally attacked by a gang of thugs. Beaten up very badly, broken bones, maybe gang raped. You end up in hospital. And I delay my return home. And a couple of days, I go in and see you in the hospital. You're all bandaged up and in traction and feeling pretty awful. And I say to you, I'm so sorry this has happened to you, but I have some good news for you. I have found your muggers and I have forgiven them. What would you say to me? Wouldn't you be outraged? Spluttering through your bandages? Of all the infernal cheek. I mean, what right do you have to forgive? You weren't the one that was gang raped, you know? You're, you're not the one that was mugged. You're not the one that's lying here in plaster. How can you possibly forgive somebody when, when, when the thing wasn't done to you? Only the person who was offended can, can, can forgive the offense. You don't have the right. Isn't that what you would say? And of course, you'd be right. That is exactly what a young Jew by the name of Simon Wiesenthal faced toward the end of the Holocaust. All of his family was wiped out at Auschwitz. He was at Auschwitz himself, but somehow he survived. And in the last weeks before the Russians freed the camp, when he was returning one evening from a work detail, he was pulled out of line by the guards and shoved into a room where there was a young Nazi soldier, maybe 19 or so, clearly dying of terrible wounds that he had received. Apparently, this young Nazi soldier had asked to talk to a Jew before he died. And when Wiesenthal went in, the Jew facing the Nazi, the Nazi then said to him that he knew full well that the Nazis had perpetrated awful crimes against the Jews and that he himself had been complicit in some of these and before he died, he wanted Wiesenthal's forgiveness. Wiesenthal writes this up afterwards. It's in a little book. You can download it online. It's called The Sunflower. It's just about 80 pages. Most of the 80 pages are devoted to what goes on in Wiesenthal's mind after the Nazi has asked this of him. It's all expanded in slow motion, as it were, as he tries to think this through. And the sum of what he thinks through is this. Most of the Nazis' Jewish victims are dead. Here in Auschwitz, a small oven, and then just two miles away, the bigger ovens at Birkenstock, where a million or so were burned and altogether, six million Jews and how many other victims? And, and, and they're all dead. But if only the offended 
people can forgive and the most offended people are all dead, then what right do I have to forgive this chap? I'm not dead. If all of the most offended people of the Nazis are dead, then there is no forgiveness for the Nazis. There is no one here to forgive them. And after the war, he wrote it all up. Called it the sunflower. And he circulated it to ethicists all over the world. Some Christian, some secularist, some Jews. And he simply asked the question, did I do what was right? And he generated a huge discussion amongst ethicists for a while. But I tell you, from the Bible's perspective, Wiesenthal almost got it right. He was right in saying that ultimately only the offended parties can forgive. But what he overlooked is that according to the Bible, the most offended party is always God. So that when David commits the terrible sins that he committed, seducing a young woman, impregnating her, eventually murdering her husband, horrible things. Eventually, when he's confronted and repents and is broken and various sufferings are, are, are part of his experience, the experience of the nation and so on, eventually he writes Psalm 51. And amongst the things he says in Psalm 51, as he pours out his heart to God in repentance, he says, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Of course, at a certain level, that was a load of rubbish. He'd certainly sinned against the young woman. He had seduced her. Sinned against her husband. He had bumped him off. Sinned against the baby in, in Bathsheba's womb. The baby shouldn't have been there. Sinned against the military command. He had corrupted them. Sinned against his own family. He had betrayed them. Sinned against the entire nation because, after all, he was the chief magistrate. He was supposed to be preserving justice. Instead, he was corrupt. It's hard to think of anybody he hadn't sinned against. Yet he has the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And yet at the deepest level, that was exactly right. What makes sin so sinful? What makes sin so grievous? What makes sin so abominable? What makes it so heinous is that it offends God. So if you cheat on your income tax, April 15 is coming. The most offended party is God Almighty. If you cheat on your spouse, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you're busy watching porn, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you're nurturing bitterness, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you're abusing your children, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you're a child who won't obey your parents, the most offended party is God Almighty. That's elementary Christian theology. That's what makes sin so sinful. It's an offense against God. Which is why whatever else we have, what we must have, is forgiveness from God. We must have that. We must have that. Or we have nothing. And now this young man comes down before Jesus, and Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven. And the critics say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who indeed? And Thomas was there. 
So now forced to think these things through for a whole week, he turns them over in his mind again and again and again. He, he, he thrashes them all out and he comes to the conclusion, I don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But if he did, these things must be taken into account. This is not merely a resurrection like the resurrection of Lazarus. This is something stupendously more than that. And he falls before Jesus and he cries, my Lord and my God. Nor is this some mere later liturgical formula, our Lord and our God. It's personal. It's his own personal faith now, my Lord and my God. Part of becoming a Christian is coming to the place where you so bow before the Lord Jesus that you come to say, my Lord and my God. So here, then, is the adoration of an astonished skeptic. And finally, the service of a converted skeptic. Verse 29, I fear, is sometimes misconstrued. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is sometimes taken by folks in our generation to mean Jesus assigns a higher value to the kind of faith that has no evidence to support it. If you just believe something, that's good faith. In your case, Thomas, you've got second-class faith because in your case, you've had evidence to support the faith. That's not good. Okay, you believe. Fine, fair enough. But, but blessed are those who don't have any evidence whatsoever and then believe. Which fosters the view of faith that is so common in our society that faith is personal, subjective, religious choice without any necessary connection to truth. But I have to tell you that the word faith is never used that way in the New Testament, not once. It makes no sense at all from the point of view of the New Testament. You can see this very clearly when Paul talks about the resurrection and faith in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, okay, supposing you're having trouble now really believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's think this through. Supposing Jesus did not rise from the dead, what would follow from that? We now accept that Jesus is not risen from the dead. What follows from that? Number one, all the witnesses... 500 of them, finally, in ones and twos and sevens and twelves and groups and up to 500, over weeks and weeks and weeks, they're all telling lies. They're not speaking the truth. You have to see that the access to these events is through witnesses, and all the witnesses have to be wrong. They have to be deceiving you. Then number two, it would mean then that you're still lost in your trespasses and sins because you have no confidence that when Jesus died on the cross... His sacrifice was accepted by God. He's vindicated by the resurrection from the dead. And in fact, if he's not resurrected from the dead, then maybe just he died as a, a martyr or a failure, a, a, a wishful thinker, but, but not as a sacrifice that is accepted by God. As, as far as you're concerned, you're still in your trespasses and sins. You're still a damned brood. And third, he says, your faith is useless. It's futile. He says that because if you believe something that isn't true, the faith is useless. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead when in fact he did not rise from the dead, Paul does not say, oh, well, it's true for you. Or maybe Jesus rose in your heart. He says, actually, then, your faith is useless. Because one of the criteria of valid faith is the truthfulness of faith's object. If you believe something that isn't true... 
That doesn't make faith good or special or insightful or wonderfully rich. It, it, it means that the faith is useless. Now, faith is more than believing that something is true. After all, the devil himself believes that Jesus rose from the dead. But that doesn't mean the devil is saved. Faith also includes personal trust, turning away from our sins to trust this God who has done something true. But it is never less than believing true things. That's why in the Bible, faith is not increased by people yelling at you, believe, 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 don't ask questions, just shut up and believe, 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 believe. Rather, faith is fostered in the Bible by articulating and defending the truth. And by so living it out that people are compelled to see it. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, if you believe what isn't true, you are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, he's saying your life is a joke. So in the Bible, faith is tied to the truth question. And so it is here. That's simply a given. It's presupposed that the connection between faith and truth runs right through John's gospel. It's very strong. So what is Jesus saying here in chapter 20, verse 29? Ah, John understands. John, the author of this book, he understands because he is linking verse 29 to verses 30 and 31. You must put them together. What he is saying is this. You have come to believe because you've had evidence. But many, 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 long after you're dead, for that matter, my dear Thomas, will come to believe who, who have never had the kind of evidence that you've had. In fact, every Christian in this room, you never put your hand in Jesus' side. What access to the evidence do you have? The access to the evidence that you have is through the first witnesses, including Thomas and Peter and Paul and John, those first witnesses, some of those first 500. So you, Thomas, you, you have seen and believed. You are blessed for that. That's good. Your faith is well grounded in the truth. But you know, there are many others who will not see and believe. And these things are written, verse 30, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There are many other things that Jesus did that are not written in this book, but these are written, including the account of Thomas himself, that are written. And so Thomas now becomes part of a chain through the Gospel of John that passes on the truth of the Gospel to generations at that time still unborn, who would come to believe because of the faithfulness of his witness. Here is the service of a converted skeptic. In other words, what this gospel does is address the doubts of people who need to see that their faith in Christ as the sufficient risen Savior is well grounded in the facticity in the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. All those different witnesses, all of the wisdom that came from Jesus after he rose from the dead, all of his instruction, all of the thinking through what his death actually meant. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The sacrifice was accepted before God. He now gives us his resurrection life. And one day we will have resurrection bodies like his resurrection bodies. All of it turns finally on the facticity of Jesus rising from the dead. To which Thomas himself bears witness. And we too are called to bow and say my Lord and my God.
Let us pray. If Christ had not been raised from death, our faith would be in vain. Our preaching but a waste of breath, our sin and guilt remain. But now the Lord is risen indeed. He rules in earth and heaven. His gospel meets a world of need. In Christ we are forgiven. Enable us who have become Christians, Lord God, to see more clearly, to ground our faith more securely in the truth, to offer you thanksgiving for the witnesses that have been given to us. And we pray for those here who are not yet Christians. Give them eyes to see, we beg of you, so that they too will come to say, My Lord and my God. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In Jesus' name. Amen. Each bow your heads just for a moment. I'm going to give us a benediction. Thank you, Dr. Carson, for your ministry this weekend. And the thought that keeps crossing my mind is, did not our heart burn within us when we heard the truth, the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And I don't know everyone that's here this morning, but maybe there's never been that time when you have personally said, my Lord and my God, and you've trusted in Christ. We'll have people up here after the service that would be glad to pray with you. As a matter of fact, if they could come now, that would be good. And let's not allow this weekend to go without us really coming to grips with the risen Lord and what that means for us in life. So if you would stand, please. Let me just close with this benediction from Hebrews. And hear the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.